Welcome back to Not Your Average BS, where we talk about what everybody else is thinking. I'm Brendy, and today we have a guest, Laura Smith, who is on to talk about her organization that she works with, Action for Education Equity, and what it's like being in the Rochester City School District, which, if you didn't know, is the most economically segregated school district in the country. So we talk all about what this means, why people should care about educational equity, and what racism in the education system looks like. We talk about privilege. We talk about what you can do to make a difference and what it's really like to be a part of a local organization that is involved in making change in a community. We hope that you all enjoyed today's conversation. And without further ado, let's get into the episode. Thank you so much to Laura Smith for coming on the podcast today. We are so excited to have you and to talk with you. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. The first thing we like to do for our podcast is have our guests share an appetizer, which can be an app, a resource, a website, a book, pretty much anything. And it's something you use in your personal life. It can be related to today's topic or just something you enjoy. So do you have an appetizer for everyone? Yeah, I do actually. Um, my my appetizer is probably the best book that I've read in um, 2020, and that's Anti-Racist Baby by Ibram X. Kendi. Um, my daughter was actually given it during a, a Black Kids Matter event this summer, and it blew my mind to how this simple book aimed at kids could explain some things that I just as an adult have never really fully understood. And like for the first time, it, it kind of gave me as a parent, I mean, my daughter's uh, only three years old, but it gave me as a parent actually some like way forward on like talking about this, all the racist messages that we see and how uh, some deeply entrenched racist views are, are, are there and how we can challenge them. And I just thought that it was, um, yeah, one of the best books that I, that I've read this year and, and just one of the most practical books that I had. That's awesome. I, I feel like that'll be a great resource for a lot of people, especially because we feel like these very difficult topics that we, you know, have to discuss, they feel so big and so difficult to understand. But when you break it down, it's really not as complicated as people make it seem. Right. And it really just showed to me the things that I've missed out in my logic growing up, you know, that if I'd have taken the approach that it tells me to take with my daughter, I think things could have been different in some of the embedded ideas that I have and things like that. So yeah, I, I really love it. That's awesome. So getting into today's questions, this is kind of a very big picture question, but we ask all of our guests, who is Laura Smith? And kind of just talk, talk about what makes you you, where you're from, and kind of just give us an overview of yourself. I know, right? You really start with like the hardest question, like, <laughs> yeah. who am I? Like <laughs> some kind of like introspection that I don't know if I'm capable of doing. So I'll, I'll give it a go. Um, so I'm originally uh, from the UK. Uh, you might be able to tell that by my accent. Um, and I moved to the US to Rochester, New York uh, about five years ago. Um, so Picking out some things from my background, I studied law and I graduated uh, as a barrister in the UK. So, you know, the ones on the TV shows that wear the white wigs 
um, in the traditional British shows. That's that's what my background was. But um, at the point when you had to take the internship to actually practically be one of those, I decided that I would just uh, go off and do something else. So I uh, kind of uh, went off around the world, worked in some different places. And then I worked as a, a legal consultant in environmental and occupational health and safety law. And I'm really passionate about health and safety law because I, I believe that you shouldn't go to work and get injured unnecessarily just for get, earning a paycheck. But it was thankless, let me tell you. Um, so uh, when my uh, daughter was born um, almost four years ago now, uh, I took the opportunity to do something different. Um, I was looking for something that would just kind of fill my soul more uh, and feel like it wasn't something that I dreaded getting out of bed to do. So I um, set myself up. I have a really small um, craft business where I make um, uh, necklaces and scarves out of uh, recycled fabrics, uh, which I love doing because it's creative. It's never going to pay the bills, but I love it. And, um, and then I started taking classes and, and looking at podcasting. So I have one podcast that I have now called um, Stories for Grace Renee, which is basically documenting stories from my family um, and my husband's family. Our families um, span three continents and four generations. So it's trying to get some of those stories um there so that you know as my daughter grows she knows who she is she knows where she came from um so I've enjoyed that and I'd like to do more with podcasting but I'm sure as you two know it's it's a lot of work and um fitting it in in life is difficult but then so I kind of stumbled into what I do now which is um I'm an advocate for equitable funding for Rochester uh, City School District in Rochester New York and so don't ask me what I'm going to be doing next week or next year I'm not really sure yet. I'm just finding my way. So. I love that. Um, what kind of made you all want to come to Rochester specifically? I feel like that's a very niche location, um, especially coming all the way from the UK. Right. Well, actually, before we moved here, we were living in, in Brussels in Belgium. Um, and it's just a practical thing. My, my husband's American and, uh, he was offered a job opportunity, uh, with Xerox, which is based in Rochester, New York. So that kind of brought us here. And I'll be honest, I had no idea. It's, it's one of the most famous places that I've never heard of. So many amazing things have happened in Rochester, but it's not a place that people really talk about, but, uh, yeah. So I came here and here I am. <laughs> I love that. Um, and so speaking a little bit more to your activism, you touched on some things that you're um, passionate about and whether that be creatively or, um, you know, your job as a barrister in the UK, what, how did you get involved in activism and did you always imagine yourself in this space of work? Like you said, you've only lived here for, you know, five years. Um, so what's kind of been the reason behind wanting to get involved in activism? So I'm pretty embarrassed to say that I'm actually very new to activism. Um, it's only been in the last year that I've really begun to speak up on things. Uh, when I moved to Rochester, I wondered why, even within the city limits, it was such a segregated city. But I'm ashamed to say I don't really have a good reason for it. I just wasn't curious enough to understand that there must be something behind that. Um, 
So Rochester, New York has some absolutely amazing uh, black advocates, including lots of youth advocates through groups like we have a group called Teen Empowerment and the NYCLU's Youth Activism Program. And they have spoken out about like structural racism in Rochester so many times. And, and I just wasn't listening. Um, and uh, I owe them a, a pretty much a huge apology for that. Um, particularly to all the kids that struggle to graduate in Rochester City School District. Uh, I'm sorry that I didn't feel any passion to protect them um, until I kind of had my own daughter and started looking at it from my own selfish perspective. I'm definitely always going to be trying to make up for that. And so I think that's what drove me, once I started to understand what was going on, that drove me to get involved because really it's facing the fact that I have these values and I just wasn't living them in terms of um, getting involved and speaking out. So anyway, about uh, a year ago, there was lots of these local headlines about um, the fact that there was a huge budget deficit for the Rochester City School District. So like many people, I, I, go, I went to an event organized uh, by the Children's Agenda, which is a local organization, and it focuses on research and data-driven solutions to improve educational outcomes, particularly for children impacted by racism and poverty. So I got into this event full of that kind of anger, um, thinking I'm going to find out who stole this money from the school district and I'm going to put everything to rights and, uh, you know, I'm going to hold <laughs> these incompetent people accountable because that's what I can do. You know, you get this thing of like, as I'm an armchair expert, right? I've, I've, I've seen some headlines and I think I can fix the world. So <laughs> I get to this event and uh, I'm listening and, and it suddenly struck me, um, what if I'm wrong? And they explained the funding system and that's why I'm really grateful for this organization because they talked about the numbers in a way that I hadn't been able to understand. And I realized that the dramatic financial situation and headlines from now was like a symptom of years and years of chronic underfunding. And um, just like how many families dealing with poverty end up in a debt spiral, that's kind of what's happened to our school districts. So when you don't have enough money to pay your bills, you start shifting money from one account to the other. You start um, paying the bill for whatever's the most urgent, borrowing at higher interest rates until eventually everything just comes collapsing down like this big house of cards. So I'm sitting there thinking, wait, how how did I not know this? Like, how am I full of anger at the kind of aiming my anger at the wrong people. So once I understood that, I kind of realized that there was a way out of all this. He said, she said local drama and that like, I just couldn't not do something to help move that forward. That's awesome. That's, that's really so cool how, you know, you kind of came into this situation, not really knowing, and you're like, okay, this is wrong. Like I need to do something about it. Like I'm going to be the one to kind of fix it. Um, so that's just really cool. Um, and for those who maybe not, or may not really understand what we're talking about, um, what would you say like equity in the education system looks like? You kind of touched on it with funding, but for those who just may, you know, be uneducated or unaware what that looks like, um, could you kind of talk about that a little bit? Okay. So I'm going to talk about it from the example of Rochester because that's the one that I know, but I think that it applies to um, most of the districts that are struggling. So like uh, way back in 2001, uh, the highest court in New York state found that the model of funding, which is heavily based on headcounts. So giving an amount of money based on 
the number of kids that you have go into a district was flawed. And and basically they found in that court case that it breached the rights to a sound basic public education, which was contained in the New York State Constitution. So it's a constitutional right that everybody in New York State is supposed to have. So they came up with a different formula. And this is about equitable funding, um, like, and it's called foundation aid. So what they did was they worked out, okay, students facing certain challenges need more money and more supports to succeed because um, their their challenges require extra either extra people or extra tools to be able to have the same uh, education. So they identified the groups and it's like children uh, in poverty and it's children with special education needs and it's children who are multi-language learners. And so they recalculated their model and said, okay, what happens if we give those children more money and more support to succeed? Uh, and so that's kind of what we talk about. We talk about equitable funding and they began rolling out this model in 2007. And then the recession hit and it was never fully implemented. So the way that impacts a district like um, Rochester City School District is that it has, and it impacts a lot of uh, urban city districts actually um so the every year new york state publishes the amount needed to fully fund the school district and every year new york state doesn't give that full amount of money so in other districts that have a, a high tax local tax base they can supplement that from the property values but when you live in particularly in russia's a city school district you there isn't a lot of money. There aren't that many businesses here um, because of policies that have been implemented over years and years. It's a really depressed economic region. So taking that money, um, they haven't got any other source for it. So they're just underfunded. So, and I want to give you an idea of what what numbers we're talking about here. So we're for this year, the difference between what Rochester City School District needs and it receives is $86 million. So I'm not talking about change, small change here. I'm talking about um, big amounts. So that was where um, we, we started this group, Action for Education Equity. And we're talking about there are other things that are barriers to equity, like um, communities like ours that don't have enough um, black and brown teachers. So we don't have teachers and staff that reflect the students that they're teaching um, and we we need to fix those things but you cannot fix those things without enough money to pay those people and you cannot fix those things without putting a focus and investment in that district so that's really what we're talking about about equity so um so when we talk about like the our group in rochester new york we're called action for education equity and we are focusing on that solely in our district. So um, when I say to the people that our yearly fundraising goal is 86 million, most of them laugh. <laughs> okay. Uh, and probably think that we're quite insane for even in attempting it. But actually, when you, and that's the, the beauty of community. If we stop thinking about ourselves as the 28,000 kids that go to Rochester City School District, and we even stop thinking about ourselves as the people who live in Monroe County, which is where Rochester is based, and we think about ourselves as, um, you know, citizens of New York State, well, if you divide that money up 
um, you end up with an amount which is less than $5. So you're basically saying if everybody in New York State valued the education of children in Rochester, it would cost them less than $5 to fix that. Now, I will tell you, honestly, there are people living in Rochester City who couldn't afford an extra $5 a year. That's It's that. The poverty levels are really, really impactful uh, here. But there are also people in New York State who could afford to give way more than $5. So that's how you balance it out, really, is that is if, if, we, if we identify a problem for our neighbors and we don't consider our neighbors to be just the people who live on the same block as us, then we actually have the ability to redistribute funds in a way that actually helps and, and supports them. And like the challenges of our, our particular district are pretty stark. We have, um, of the students attending Rochester City School District, there's uh, 90% of them are economically disadvantaged. Um, we have uh, far higher um, special education rates than our neighboring suburbs. And we also have a huge amount of um, multi-language learners compared to our suburbs. So in Rochester City School District, there are 75 community languages spoken. Um, yeah. So the challenges of actually uh, help to make sure that all of those people have the language supports the translation like just translating their school report cards so that people at home can understand them is huge we have the i think last time i checked it was the third biggest um uh, puerto rican population um and so like when they had those devastating hurricanes um rochester city school district uh had an increase of 500 children coming from that region to move here. And that's like just appearing in the matter of a couple of months. So like the, the challenges faced by districts like Rochester, and I say it's not unique, um, but of those kind of districts is huge. And equity is looking at those challenges and saying, how can we help? How, how do we truly support those districts to succeed? Um, so looking into like your role and you touched a little bit about what action for education equity does, what does a typical day look like for you? Like, how are you fundraising, especially in the midst of COVID? Because obviously you probably aren't having in-person events or really able to get that face-to-face -face contact with people in your community or legislators, even at that. Um, so what has that kind of looked like this year um, in the midst of the pandemic and how have my question too, I know that it's not on our sheet, but also um, you're talking about all these issues with equity. So what has um, the school system done to ensure that these children um, who are in low economic um, status, how are they being cared for during this time if they're not even in school or if they're in some sort of alternative program right now? Yeah, 2020 has been totally brutal on a whole area. Um, if I think about my typical day, I'll tell you when I have a typical day. I can't answer that right now, but no, I'm joking. I, I, there is no, there is no typical date. We're fairly new in our approach. There has been a, uh, Rochester has had an education foundation to support the city school district for a, a long time, but that uh, foundation focuses a lot on, um, on, so it, it will do fundraising, amazing fundraising projects, but they're related to like buying books or they're related to um, connecting kids with musical instruments, which is vital work. But they don't um, 
put money straight back into the district. So what we've created, and we just put it into place this year in Action for Education Equity, and we only officially started fully fundraising um, on Giving Tuesday, the 1st of December. So we're like super new at this. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. If we're really trying something different is what if you take the model of like a PTA, PTO, so a parents association that raises money for a school and you put that higher up. And so you say, OK, we're going to raise money for the whole district and then we're going to give the district agency an autonomy to to make solutions that work for them. So a typical day for me right now is a lot to do with convincing people that the Rochester City School District can be is part of a victim of what's going on. So we can, you know, on a local level, we can get really caught up in those ideas of like those people with all this money and it, the district has a big budget and it's not managing its budget as well as it could. So it's easy to get into those kind of like, yeah, they just need to manage that money better. But like when you start looking at their performance levels, you start seeing things that are like really super interesting. So like our graduation rate here is like 63%. Syracuse and Buffalo are our neighboring sub uh, cities and Syracuse graduation rate is 64%. Buffalo's graduation rate is 65%. And you start to say, but like, we're not unique, right? So a lot of my work is is talking to people and trying to um, chip away at some of those ideas which come from years and years of like respectability politics that like the, the poor people are the problem and we need to like be aggressive against them. So what I'm doing right now is I'm working on the podcast series that we're developing to kind of tell the story of Rochester City School District in a kind of bigger way. So it's kind of designed to be like a, a narrative story. Um, so the working title is what if we're wrong? Cause it's kind of like a bit like my journey to understanding how, how wrong I was. Um, so I'm having, I like thank you. So I'm having a lot of tough conversations and kind of trying to push and challenge the status quo because it can, two things can be true at one time, right? The money that we have could be better spent, but ultimately if the, the goal is a quality education, if there isn't enough money to do that, um, we can't do that. So in the podcast series, I'm looking, cause like I said, I'm late to the party, but there have been a lot of, um, amazing black advocates talking about this for a long time so my my um point with the podcast is to try to amplify the voices of students parent leaders and advocates and 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 give them another outlet to maybe reach people like me who just did not pay enough attention so like what that means like right now is rochester has been rochester city school district has been fully remote since uh the since March. Um, so there has been no in-person instruction, even though uh, all of our neighboring districts have been on a hybrid model uh, quite a lot. And that's huge because a lot of our um, students don't have internet. So um, they've been trying to um, find projects to provide them with internet. They, they were like giving them um, internet hubs and then finding that if you've got four kids trying to do remote learning, that those hubs don't have the capacity to handle that level of video and all, all that kind of stuff that goes with it. So there are real concerns that our school district is falling further and further behind. Um, we we have a, a much higher vulnerable population because of poverty. We most of the uh, employment opportunities for people are in frontline care roles, so they're much more exposed to risks from COVID. 
uh, and it's been a really awful year. And our project looks to fundraise outside. We don't want to be um, taking money from amazing advocacy organizations that are doing great work in the community. We're not, we can't keep fighting over that local pool of money because it simply isn't enough. So what our focus has been um, or is, is going to be on our fundraising strategy is helping people understand why, why anybody should care about uh, a city school district that they are not affiliated with. Um, so I'm, do you want to know why I think you should care? <laughs> yeah, that kind of leads us into the next question. I was going to say, you kind of talked about how these issues aren't, you know, just unique to Rochester. Um, so why should people care or even think to get involved potentially with what's going on in their own local community or just the education system in America in general? Right. I think that um, there's two parts to that question. So I'm going to talk about why people should care about Rochester and then I'm going to talk about why they should care about other communities because I think that they kind of go hand in hand if, if you're okay with that so sure. um there there was a study released I think the first part is helping people understand what um structural racism has done and where it's done it in this country in the USA so uh Ed Bill did a study on data from 2016 and found that the most segregated school district border in the entire U.S is between Rochester City School District and Penfield, which is our, uh, one of our neighboring suburbs. Not only that, and that, that, that kind of blows my mind just as an individual thought, because like, we're in New York State, everybody thinks that New York State is this liberal area and whatever, that how could we have this most segregated border? But the, the, the more depressing stat is that Rochester City School District, like most school districts, is like a bullseye surrounded by suburb districts, right? It's this little round, um, small geographic area. But in fact, five of the top 50 most segregated socially, economically, and racially in the country surround Rochester. So it's not just one district. It's like uh, five of them. Uh, And so... You can track that to deliberate racist policies in Rochester. And you can say that Rochester is actually an example of successful racial segregation. They have done it to such an extent that it is almost complete. You know, we're, we're surrounded by um, all these districts that are much more wealthy. So um, I'm very grateful for this, but recently uh, the Pathstone Foundation created uh, an anti-racist curriculum for for Monroe County, so the area that we live in. And they're trying to roll it out to kids to help them understand how is it possible that that can be happening here. So we've got like the the traditional things that lots of people talk about, like uh, redlining being an issue where people make... uh, it's much harder for people to buy properties and to insure properties in certain areas with a high black population and brown population. And then we, they were able to dig up like real practice documents from realtors, even within the city um, where they stopped um, black and brown residents from buying properties in white neighborhoods, even within the city limits. So like, that's how you can see in a, a city map. It's like, uh, our black and brown residents live in small areas because those are the areas that they allowed them to live in. So 
Rochester is the is the final resting place of Frederick Douglass, right? It's, it's where he gave his famous July 4th speech. Um, it's the home of Susan B. Anthony. It's the end of the Underground Railroad, um, goes straight out from the city into the lake. And Harriet Tubman's house is an hour's drive from mine, right? So there's all these things going on. It's, it's the home of Kodak. It's where Kodak came from. It's where Xerox came from. Um, Bausch and Lom, it's famous for a, a huge jazz festival. It has um, ama- amazing things going on, but it also has its own, um, and the anti-racist curriculum project shows it had its own KKK. And they were parading around um, sports fields in our neighborhoods. And uh, right up until the, the 60s, it had uh, blackface shows, um, very prevalent all over the area. Uh, and it had um, racist covenants. So all of the suburban areas had written into the deeds of their homes that um, uh, black people couldn't own them. And so, and in fact, you can find those still written into covenants. None of them are legally enforceable anymore, but they are still there. And so there's this, if you dig even a tiny bit, you just scratch your finger over the surface. You you see that all of the issues that we see in Rochester City are by design. And like uh, there's been court cases around it as well. That So once, once they created the situation where they concentrated poverty and denied opportunity, because for example, Kodak, which made this area really wealthy, wouldn't allow when... Uh, when a, a huge influx of um, black people arrive from the South, it wouldn't allow them jobs. So they weren't allowed to um, get involved in things. And in fact, even um, they, they have brought in a um, black uh, doctor into their research program at Kodak. And he, the only way he could buy a house was if a white person bought it for him. So th- there's been like deliberate, systemic attempts to uh, prevent the black and brown population of Rochester from accumulating wealth. And then as the years gone have gone on, that's come to be understood locally as like, um, okay, so these areas are poor. That's kind of their fault. It's something to do with them and we don't owe them any money. And so there's been like a lot of policies where you actually can't live outside the, the city anymore because there's no transport infrastructure um there is very little low income housing so even if you want to leave to move to a a wealthier school district you simply um can't and so um it's an example it's perhaps one of the the biggest examples um and people joke about it it's a really awful joke but they call us the flint michigan of education and it's around that idea of like here you can see it's 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 laid out for you how um, racism works and how structural racism impacts multi generations. So you know that things haven't changed much. So we have incredibly high um, concerns around lead poisoning for young children in Rochester because the housing stock that they have still have access to today, as compared to the suburban neighbors is very high in lead paint so we're we're continuing cycles of poor health um 
you know, when the Kodak um, operations here, a lot of the industrial operations have moved out, but they were pumping out, you know, pollution into the areas where people were living. So we see a lot of the interconnectedness here. And so when we ask the question of like, why should people care about Rochester? It's the same reason why you should care about any of the other school districts, because we made this, you know, and I'm not even originally from here, but I have to take community responsibility for this is something we created like as if just as clearly as if we built a building so if we created it we have to always be asking ourselves how do we destroy it and it's not okay for us to sit uh, on the fence with that and be like oh okay yeah I know these things happened in the past if we're not asking ourselves what did we do to fix them if we haven't fixed them then they're still our problem and we still need to take action so I guess that's what I think and I hear it a lot you know people like oh lots of school districts struggle then help them like it's not a school district it's people such a crazy concept right oh like just to help yeah <laughs> like um it's like as if we think that those kids somehow choose to be in the circumstances that they're in like get get involved and and start to understand why ask ask the questions that I did not ask don't be me be better than me yeah <laughs> um I you bring up two really good points that I want to touch on number one is you said that it's a joke to say that you know Rochester is the Flint Michigan of education and to me I'm like how is that funny to anybody you know like that should be an embarrassment um to be able to even say that and to be able to laugh about it. And then two, it's also interesting to me that you're, you were not born in Rochester, yet you have such a passion um, for the school district. And I can only hope that, you know, that weaves itself through other people um, who, you know, have a bigger stake in the community and who are able to give. Um, but as somebody who is white and who is married to a black man and now you have a child how do you show up as an ally just outside of you know what you do for work every day um how much has that informed the work that you do i think it's an important part of my identity but it's a difficult part of my identity to reconcile because uh being white and being married to a black man doesn't give me any more insight you know I haven't lived it. I haven't experienced it. And I have to listen to the people that have. And and in, in the case of our family dynamic, um, you know, my husband's from a far wealthier background than me. And so maybe his experiences have also been different. I think that the thing that makes it impactful to me is that, not to be too real about things, but I live in Rochester City and Rochester City is also known um, as the place um, where Daniel Prude was murdered uh, recently in um, an incident with, with the police. And I have conversations and I've had conversations with my husband about what do we do? We live in a predominantly white neighborhood. We live in a wealthier neighborhood within the city. What do we do if our house is being broken into? How do we call the police and let them know that we have a problem? Do I call and my white voice makes them think it's a white family and when they come to the door and they they kind of come in, they could confuse my husband for the intruder? 
right based on all of that prejudice that we carry or does does he does he call or do do we call and make it clear that we're a mixed race family so that you know that my husband receives that moment of thought and, and those are conversations that i guess um white white families aren't aren't being asked to have but they're real conversations that that we have you know um I've read I've read other people make summaries of it but it's absolutely true that you know the idea of having a tail light out to my husband is terrible like you you don't you're not driving that car until that's fixed like that has to be dealt with because the consequence of being pulled over and not trusting and believing that the person's going to see you and understand the mind and nature of it um is is real so I think that when you know, um, when my husband goes out and, uh, does his morning run through the neighborhood, some days that's hard because in the winter, particularly when it's dark, I worry that somebody sees him running and thinks something, uh, nefarious is going on. And, um, you know, I, uh, I think that impacts everyday life and, and, you know, don't, um, get me wrong we experience many issues of, of privilege too, right? Our experience is nowhere like um, the experience of our neighbors uh, where, you know, that is a very real real threat to them every day. But it does, it does permeate. We spend a lot of time, or me as a person has spent a lot of time trying to ignore it. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, that's all part of coming to the realization that you, you can't ignore it. And you spoke a little bit about um, Daniel Prude um, just here a few moments ago. How has that situation, um, which happened back in March, impacted um, both the city of Rochester as well as the Action for Education and Equity um, group that you are a part of? Hugely. It's been a very, very... um, painful year um so you know uh this week last week sorry last week uh there was a report published just locally saying that uh you know that they didn't think that the city had done anything wrong in terms of the mayor's office and everybody in terms of taking action when they saw the video of what had happened to mr prude and there was people out protesting on the streets in the snow you know it's it's a uh, a visceral pain that is being felt by the community. And uh, we, earlier in the year, so in response to um, his his murder, there were people out on the street that I could, you know, you can hear from your bed at night that the noise going on at the downtown. And I, I so wanted to be part of it. But as a, I'm not a US citizen, I'm a, a resident. I was afraid to get involved in anything that might impact my um, status in the country. And so the day after, um, there was a, a big protest and the police have incredible amounts of, of weaponry, like, uh, um, you know, armored vehicles, dogs, all kinds of stuff out on the streets. And my husband goes to um, the downtown um presbyterian church and uh, in that church there's another 
church called Spiritus Christi, and they had decided to open up a medic center inside their church. And they had, um, as the evening progressed, things got violent. The police were out uh, herding people around and they were running. They had, people had taken shelter inside of the church building. And, uh, the next morning, uh, my husband went down just to see what had happened. And there was like a standoff between the police and protesters for about an hour inside the church or so. And the, my, my husband went down there in the morning and the side of the church building was like pockmarked with whatever had been shot at the building. And that was really, uh, difficult for, for his church and for the community, like how have we got to this point where you're shooting uh whatever rounds you're shooting that leave uh imprints in the brickwork at at people we've had a lot of health issues from protesters um throughout the year uh, female protesters uh were experiencing a lot of um issues with their um periods and uh people have had like chronic eye, eye conditions. So there's physical remnants from the, the violence, but there's also a psychological um, side of it too. The school district has been providing mental health supports to help children cope with, with what's going on in their community. It's been incredibly difficult for them. Cause like you said, Shannon, it's a year where we've all been more isolated at home. Um, and they're they're hearing these things. They're witnessing them. Some of them were down there protesting, um, and they're afraid. I think that nothing will change. I can't speak for them. Obviously, personally, um, everybody is on their own um, journey with what happened. But there's so much anger and so much uh, fear, and you know, just that little bit of like, we can't, we can't allow this to continue. And we have a long history in Rochester of issues with the police. Um, the murder of Daniel Prude wasn't the first case. In fact, I, you know, I'm a big podcast fan and I listened to the criminal podcast and uh, the criminal podcast did a, a specific episode on Sylvan Simmons and his case with the Rochester police. Um, he was shot several times. He, he fortunately lived and, um, so as a result of that, the, the, there was a movement to create a police accountability board, which was a uh, citizen-based accountability for police um, misconduct. And uh, 70% of the residents voted for it. So that's kind of like what the community is like, right? It's like, we can make this change. We're going to vote for this new authorities for our organizations. Um, and, and they voted for it. Everyone voted for it. Everyone's thrilled. And then the police union appealed and won. So there's this police accountability board that the community supports, which does not have the powers that the community voted for it to have. So it's a really weird place to live because there's so many amazing advocates. Like, I don't know if you ever listened to uh, Daniel Ponder, but she's she's an amazing singer from Rochester. Um, and she's also a, a lawyer, uh, worked for the um, public defender's office and she's out there, you know, advocating and talking about what's happening here. So everyone's like, yeah, we have hope and belief that people are going to listen. And then we have these incidents where, you know, it's bad enough. It doesn't matter where people are being hurt and dying, 
but when it's right on your doorstep and then you feel like there's not necessarily going to be any change about that it's like it's it's devastating for the kids of our community and for them to we keep asking them to believe in the future but but if we don't invest in them we don't we don't really give them much other than lip service what would you say is something that people can do? Um, obviously, there's so many issues with structural racism and inequity in education, in you know policing and criminal justice. So, what would you say might be a good way for people to get involved? Whether it's you know they want to help structural racism as a whole in their community, or they want to focus in on one issue, such as maybe education. That's a really great question, Randy. Um, I think that um, we need to stop seeing it as what necessarily like what can we give as individual money wise, right? Sometimes we don't have the money, but we always have uh, the the power of conversation. So I'm a horrible. I, I mean, I'm a horrible dinner guest. <laughs> because uh when I go to someone's for for dinner I'm gonna talk about what's going on and I'm gonna say hey did you know these stats did you know that this thing is happening here right here in Rochester New York um and I I think maybe there needs to be more people like that I think we are afraid of being impolite or having conversations that like are gonna upset people but that's a starting point right and then I think if you live in a community where you know that there's a school district that's struggling specifically on education you should be asking a lot of questions about why and um not thinking about it from like don't be me okay i'm saying again don't be me don't go there thinking yeah i'm gonna fix you go there asking what how can i help like what it what is going on for you and what part of the solution can i be because i can't I know as an individual, I can't um, fix some of the issues around um, poverty and around um, the lack of representation in the school districts. But I can ask questions. And also, like, you can ask questions of your own school districts. So if you go to your school district, you go to your school board and you ask them, what is their policy for making sure that books that your child is receiving are racially diverse. You don't have to be a, a, a black parent to do that. And in fact, it's not about being a black parent, right? Every school district in the, in the country should have books that reflect kids. And I'm not talking about the books that they always want to get. They always want to get the books that talk about, um, slavery or racial justice I want to see books in school districts that is look like my daughter playing why is there not books with my daughter playing the skip rope skipping rope why are there not books that show kids wearing uh hijabs doing doing everyday activities and that's something that is going to have to be led by um everybody right it's got to be the white communities asking for change within their own communities so it's a lot of little things um in your everyday interactions like are you making sure that the world is a little bit of a less um racist place by pushing back on some of those those barriers 
I think that is such a good piece of advice and tangible takeaway. I feel like just going back to the education system in my own experience and thoughts, I really do feel like having anti-racist curriculum and education at such a young age, even starting at the elementary school level, will truly make a difference in how we view each other, people who are different than us, um, and things like that, and learn just to be better people in general. So thank you for that. I think that's really great advice. Well, and I think it's interesting also that you talk about that because, um, and like how you grew up, because I'm from New York originally, I'm from, not from Rochester, but, um, and I grew up in just a very like white area. Um, and so it took me probably all the way up until I would say high school or college to really learn, you know, the importances of it and recognizing bias, whether it was intentional or unintentional. Um, and so, I think the work that you're doing um, in New York State specifically is really important. And um, I'm really hopeful that, you know, hopefully these kids get to go back to school at some point next year, because that's what I think I go back to on just like a day to day basis is. And you mentioned it earlier in the episode, just that they're falling even further behind. Um, So that just creates a lot of. I don't know like the right word to use, but it's just an unsettling feeling, even though I have no connection. I don't have a child that goes there. I'm not even from that part of New York, but just to think that kids are falling even further behind and people just want to pass it off as like, oh, that's a poor people problem. That's just very disturbing to me. So I think that in today's episode, you brought a lot of just great insight as to why people um, should care because you know, you're raising money for the kids of the future. And I think that's the really the most important thing that I get out of this episode is that if we don't care, then what, who are the leaders of tomorrow going to be? Right. And like exactly that, like, how do we break down the cycles? We've been in this repetitive cycle for so, so long. And like, we have to be challenging ourselves to do that. We break down those cycles by investing in those kids for the future. That's what I I believe. And, you know, I hope some other people do too. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Laura, for coming on the podcast today. This was such an important topic and conversation, and I'm really glad that we had you to speak to our listeners. No, thank you for having me. Yes, thank you. Thank you. That is a wrap on today's episode. We hope that you all enjoyed listening to Laura and hopefully learned something as well. Shannon and I have a lot of fun content and episodes planned for you in the new year. This is the last episode of 2020 that we are going to have. So make sure you all are keeping up with us over on Instagram at NotYourAverageBS. If you haven't done so before, make sure you leave us a review. We love hearing from you guys and what you like about the episodes. And until next time, that's the BS. Thank you.